You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old and kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Kick him 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 out the Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au within the next 48 hours. My name's Joseph Toscone. Once again, Kelly has put her hand in the barrel and we've pulled out a fascinating guest. Now, as Barbara Hall is a uh, stalwart with the West Papuan Women's Office... I'd just like, before I start talking to Barbies, actually extend my condolences to uh, Jacob uh, Rumbiak on the death of his uh, son Sendai on the 9th of August in Saloisi from uh, COVID-19. He was only, I think, 34, and uh, it's a great blow to uh, Jacob, who hasn't been able to see his son for some time because here, and obviously those of you who are associated with the West Papua Independence Movement and the West Papua Office in Docklands would uh, would know Jacob as uh, one of the central pillars of the uh, West Papua struggle for independence. So I'd like to extend my condolences to him, Louise, his extended family and all his friends, uh, both overseas and Australia, on the death of his uh, eldest son, Sendai. Barbara, on that sad note, I'd like to say hello. Oh, hello, Joe. Right. Now, I'd like to apologise on behalf of the program for the my producer, Kelly. <laughs> I, I thought she was a bit uppity when she called you Barb. Now, you're a woman of, you know, reasonable age, and I assume you're not... 72, called... thank you. Exactly. That's so you would have born in 49 then, is that correct? 48. 48? I couldn't even do mathematics. So you don't call somebody who's 72 Barb, do you, Barbara? Yes, I get called Barb all the time. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you get called Barb all the time. Yes, yes, by friends. Uh, by friends. Well, this is a very formal interview, Barbara Hall. It so, sounds like it. Yeah, so don't think of me as your friend, all right? Maybe the producer is, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a friend of anybody I interview because to be friends with them means you're not objective. Oh, you believe in objectivity? Of course. I don't believe in it. I practice it. There's you a difference. It? I, I, I have no belief system. I assume you have belief systems, but we'll go into that in a minute. So you don't make 
come to any conclusions based on your experience, on your ideas? Yes, but that's not a belief system. So you don't have any belief system? No. Except reality. Well, that's up for grabs too. Is it? Yeah, I am sure my neighbour's idea of reality is very different from mine. Well, yes, but it's not based... Well, they, their reality may be based on a belief system which has got no basis in fact. Now, look here, Barbara, you're getting a bit uppity here. <laughs> it on. Now, you were born in 48. Now, were you born in this fair continent or were you born somewhere else? I was born in Altona. In 1948. Altona. It actually was in Altona in 1948? Yeah, it was Altona. Yep. Uh, and uh, I assume both your parents uh, have died? Uh, both parents have died, yeah. Right. And what was life like for a young girl in Altona between, say, 48 and the mid-50s when you were growing up? Well, I was born in Altona because there's some titchy little red brick hospital, which is still there, but it's got another name now. Right. But my parents lived in Williamstown. So if that's the you know, suburb next door. And Williamstown is a sort of little pimple into the armpit of Port Phillip Bay. Well, Barbara, I've never heard of Williamstown, the jewel, the jewel of Port Phillip Bay. Described as a pimple on the armpit. Yeah, well, back in the 60s when, you know, Mother had people visiting in the kitchen, they did say that Williamstown would become the Turak of the western suburbs. So there you are. That's why you haven't heard it called a pimple, which well, it is. Oh, but it is the Turak of the western suburbs. Oh, no, 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 maybe... You're right. There's another area that I've noticed has gone gangbusters of property prices up there in the western suburbs, near that empty quarry, you know. I don't know where that is. So what was your first memory? What's the first thing you, you can remember about being on planet Earth? Yeah, well, yeah. well I got warned you'd ask me that. <laughs> Say what, you've done some research, have you? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I have vivid memories of... Uh, being, uh, we had a sort of, mother had arranged for the veranda to be closed in, so I was on the veranda, it was a sunny morning anyway, I was writhing or groaning in bed, and Dr Long was brought in, and soon after an ambulance came because I had scarlet fever, so I went off to Fairfield Infectious Diseases Hospital as a, Mm. I don't know, a three or four year old, four-year-old perhaps and you know it was a bit discomforting uh they they didn't put me in a stretcher the ambulance man carried me yes yes and uh, so i was in this room for i think two weeks and my parents took it in turn to come out to fairfield they didn't have a car but they took it in turn to come out to fairfield to visit me right i remember that yes yes and um, it's interesting, Fairfield Hospital. Remember when Fairfield Hospital was closed down by the Kennett government? I remember so very, very well. And yeah. we 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 needed it then and we could have done with it now. Yeah, because it was being used as the um, hospital for people with uh, um, AIDS. 
and then they transferred it to the Alfred. It was just extraordinary what they did to that infectious disease hospital. Yeah, we need the special. We need the special specialism. What do you specialised nature of an infectious disease hospital? Yes. Yeah, yeah and considering the uh, pandemic, uh, it's all more important. Now, getting back to your life, um, how would you describe your mum? My mother was an activist. Uh, she was a human rights activist all her life. And even now when I think back, there are things that I have overlooked and not appreciated, uh, which I do now. For example, she there was a... When the cyclone hit Darwin, they were talking about bringing Aborigines from Darwin to occupy the Wiltona Hostel. Now, if you know anything about Williamstown and Altona, the Wiltona Hostel is between those two suburbs, right next door to the Altona refinery. So it stinks, and it certainly stunk in the 50s. And so they wanted to, you know, reopen it. And my mother's line was that it was extremely dangerous to put people so close to a, a refinery. So she, she campaigned to have it closed down. Anyway, because it's an area where I go wandering, I know that Wiltona Hostel is still there, you know, as a series of um, rotting buildings. But I actually met somebody from Williamstown about a week ago who said that they are now building residential homes right up to the edge of the refinery. So the work that my mother did with people in Williamstown and also with David Anderson from the Aboriginal Movement to have it closed down and not used for human habitation, all of that has fallen by the wayside yeah. and the developers have moved in. Yeah, in the quest for a quick dollar. Yeah. yeah. And that's the trouble, isn't it, these days? The local councils don't actually have any power in terms of uh, inhibiting development. It's all a state government responsibility. They remove that power from the local councils. Yeah. So do you remember the... Uh, the Housing Commission blocks going up in Williamstown? Well, yes, I do remember the Housing Commission blocks. There was some between my place and the Williamstown Police Station where uh, my sister had friends, so, you know, it was my job to go and get my sister for dinner, so, you know, I went many times <laughs> to go and get my sister from di for dinner. So I was familiar with the area, and then there were those the block put up down the front, which is terrific because it has a good view over the bay, and yeah. I think that's where Housing Commission homes should be, where they've got yeah. good amenity. Yes, that's right. There was a, they had radical councils in those days, and they demanded that the new Housing Commission blocks be put in in those places. And uh, unfortunately, there's this big movement at the minute to actually privatise them and give them over to private developers. It's a, a very unfortunate. Things have changed. Oh, it's it's a nightmare. Mm. Can, you, can you tell us something about your dad? My father was a seaman. He um, ran away. Well, he, did, he went away to sea at the age of 14. He was an alcoholic at 14. He worked on the Huya, which is a sailing ship. And the huya is a, an unusual New Zealand bird 
where the male and the female have different beaks because they actually eat different food. And in the hallway, I've got my mother, my father made a model of the huya, and I've you know I have it. So he went away to see, but he was a very very unhappy man. So he was an alcoholic up until about 1964. He was a strong unionist in the Siemens Union, and in my family, we had a lot to do with people in the Siemens Union. I was familiar with people, yes. Yeah, and uh, in 1964, he gave up alcohol because my mother did something very sensible. She decided that it was time to find another another intimate relationship, and she did. And this, for him, was a shock, which Mm. moved him over to Alcoholics Anonymous. But I didn't like him particularly. I found him quite, you know, every night he came home drunk, and every night it was... The bad mouthing of mother, it went on and on and on. But in the late 70s, early, oh, in the late 70s, he and, uh, and I made friends again. And that was good. And I realised how, you know, I had similarities with him. I realised he, um, yeah, he was a bit of a slow, deliberate talker, and so was I. And... Yeah, I enjoyed his company at that stage. Hmm. So you reconciled? We did reconcile. It's always a positive story, isn't it, in families? I mean, I, I really cry when I see people who don't reconcile, you know. I mean, I was at a funeral a few years ago and uh, there was this family there and a son who they hadn't seen for 20 years turned up at the funeral with his wife and his two kids and he didn't even acknowledge his parents and walked out at the end of the funeral. Yeah, it's amazing sometimes how people don't reconcile. So so how did that affect your life, having a dad who was basically verbally violent every night as you were growing up? I didn't like him, and I was quite frank about it in my teen years. You mm. know, I said to... I actually very carefully drew a picture of him one night when we were sitting in the lounge room, drunk, and it was actually quite an accurate picture. And I and I showed it to friends at high school, and one of them said, oh, it's not a very nice picture. And I said something like, I don't like my father very much. I don't like my father anyway. So, but he had an influence on my mother. And do you mind if I back... No, not, back a, not at all. It's your interview. I'm just trying to steer you in different directions. It's, it's <laughs> your story, not mine. Yeah. My mother grew up on a very, very small dairy farm in Western Australia near, or in Nanup, actually. And she had the freedom of the bush. And uh, anyway, her parents had a small dairy farm. They had an earth floor on their, whatever they lived in. And she enjoyed school, but um, her parents weren't interested in education because I think they were probably pretty struggling quite a bit. So she became a domestic worker in that area. And it's good she was never raped because when anybody made a move on her, she pissed off. Right. 
quickly. She was good at that. Mm-hmm. She was she was very sharp. And at one stage, when she'd run off, run off, and she actually worked under the Drake Brockmans at one stage, mm-hmm. and uh, she knew the difference between employers who fed you well and employers who didn't. So that was really important to my mother. If they fed you well, that was good. She at one time ran away as a teenager and she ended up on the coast of Western Australia with um, two Italian men who were living with Aboriginal women and she stayed with them and she got an education uh, in, in Aboriginal matters that, that changed her completely. So... When my father was a unionist, so when they married, and I was not that happy a marriage, as you know, my father suggested that she get involved with the uh, Aboriginal movement, and so she did. Mm-hmm. So we had a household, uh, you know, full of, um, well, there was Professor Elkin's work, which I tried to read as a, a primary school kid, and then there was all this stuff on Kamaragunga. And, uh, yeah, so she... And then when they had the referendum, and my mother told me just a few years ago, she was very well organised. She rang up the council and got a permit, and then she put an advertisement in the newspaper to say that she would be standing at this particular place in the, at the Williamstown Shopping Centre, and she said she had a queue all day to sign the petition to hold that referendum. Mm. Yeah. I think people forget that. They think the government just held the referenda in 1967. They forget all the work that went behind pushing the government to hold that referendum. Mm. Yeah, see, yeah, well, you've remembered the the proper year. (laughs) (laughs) I I didn't. That's all right. So you said you had a sister you had to bring home for tea. Did you have any other siblings? Yes, I I had a brother who was two years younger than me, who I think was much, very much affected by my father's lack of interest in him. I think he, for me, he gave off this perpetual downheartedness, disappointment. And he actually said to me once that father wasn't interested in him. Mm. And he's grown into a very um, authoritarian and unpleasant man and about with whom I have nothing to do because I think that's the effect of alcoholism. And my sister was born in 1956, and she too is very alienated. And a few years ago, probably about five years ago, she told me of a situation where she had been... While she was at primary school, raped by the father of one of her friends when she went to sleep over. Mm. And I only found that out a few years ago. So she got very interested in wagging school and uh, pursuing pot and is still very alienated. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think, I think people forget, forget there are casualties. If, oh. if it's an unhappy uh, relationship, big casualties. I, I like that image of you collecting your uh, sister to take her home for tea. I think, 
that happened all over Australia. I remember when I was a kid, they'd say to you, just, you'd leave in the morning, they didn't care where you went, and they'd say, make sure you're home for tea. That was all that seemed to interest them. <laughs> well, it's true. I spent my, my childhood roaming Williamstown with other kids. And, uh, yes, and we knew that if, you know, we didn't get home in time for tea, then we'd see Mother in the distance, you know, having hastily put her coat on, her coattails flying and with, you know, the grimmest of faces. But, you know, that only happened about once. You don't even want that to happen once. Yeah. But, yeah, we had, we went down Corey Creek Road in the spring where there were frogs galore in the ditch between the Williamstown Rifle Range and Corey Creek Road. We built cubby houses down at the south end of Cole Street with the rubbish because that was a rubbish dump. And you could find corrugated iron and all sorts of boxes and all sorts of things to make cubby houses out of. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever get to the stage of making one of those makeshift um, go-karts with the wheels from the uh, prams? No, I, that was my brother's. That was <laughs> my brother's area. Yeah, that was, that was uh, something everybody... Yeah, interesting. Inter different childhood, none of this helicopter parenting business. You kind of... You kind of had an opportunity to grow up with your peers, basically. Yeah. Well, explore the countryside and enjoy. I, I enjoyed the weeds and the and the and the vegetation and the potholes and the and the um, anywhere we could go. It it was. I loved nature. Right. And and how did you um, cope with primary school? Oh, I attended. You attended. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why I use the word coat. <laughs> um, I attended. Uh, some of it was interesting. Some of it I didn't like. Uh, grade five and grade six teachers used corporal punishment. I felt uncomfortable, very uncomfortable about that. I found it quite horrible, actually. And at one stage I was talking too much in grade six, so I was sent down to grade five to sit next to... Chester. Now, Chester had been kept down in Grade 5, and I think it was supposed to demoralise me, but it wasn't, and still I got chatty with Chester. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually met him on a... Oh, I met him on a tram in Melbourne, probably in the 90s, and I was so glad to say hello to him. Uh, did, um, he, did, he, did he recognise you? Oh, yes, he yeah. did. He yeah. did, yeah. So it was very brief. Yeah. Yeah. And how did Chester go on with his life? I don't know what happened to Chester. Um, he had a a brother called Stan. They were uh, from Yugoslavia, right. I think. Yep. And well, every, you knew everybody in Williamstown. I old Ella might have been their father. I don't know, but old Ella used to ride his bike to the Williamstown shops, and then you know, rave to the passers-by. About right. something I could not understand. Uh, maybe he's talking about Croatia. Maybe they were Croatians or Lithuanians or who knows. Yeah. That's right. It's Croatia because Croatia. Yeah. yeah, during my late teens, I met there was a Croatian living in Old Ella's place, yeah. and um, anyway, we were we were sort of friendly, kind of, and he was born to a Croatian mother uh, and a German soldier. Must have been sometime during the war. He's a little bit older than me. So, yeah, yeah, I had a little bit to do, yeah. 
So, but he he was a twit. I mean, <laughs> he was he was a very beautiful man, right? You know, you'd see him walking over the bridge of the railway line and think, "Wow, what a good looker." But in conversations with me, he'd say things like, "There is too much onomatopoeia in the Yugoslavian language," and I didn't know what onomatopoeia was. <laughs> he seemed to think that onomatopoeia was a sign of lack of progress. Right. And um, so I thought he was a bit a bit. Of a twit, and the other thing he said was, he knew every man down at the what do you call it? The uh, you know the uh, where they build ships down there. The docks. The ah, the docks. Yeah, Yeah. every man had had sex with me, right? And at that stage, I hadn't had sex with anybody. Right. So I knew, I knew that people lied about these things. As a as a as a seventeen year old, I knew it. (laughs) You knew it. Yeah. You knew it. The uh, peacock is a liar. The peacock. Well, the peacock was alive, yes. <laughs> so did you go to high school or...? Yeah, I went to Williamstown High School. Mm. And again, I hated the grey uniform. I enjoyed some of the... I enjoyed history. I... Um, yeah, didn't like knitting, but I completed my knitting exercise and thought I'd done a wonderful job to complete it and got 50 out of 100. <laughs> <laughs> That's for trying. <laughs> oh, no, I think I did a terrific job applying myself regularly. I got it done. Uh, well, that's what you got the 50% for, for doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I should have got 100%. So. Oh, well, you know, we can't all win. We can't all be winners, Barbara, you know, what life's like you've been through it. Oh, I, I reckon you've got to sort of somehow work out ways and means of making decisions about yourself, yeah. Right. So how old were you when you left school? I was 18 when I left Wimstown High School. Well, you finished, you finished year 12, which is unusual. Yeah, I finished year 12, yeah, or grades form 6. So that would have been, what, 66, 67? 66. Yeah, that's unusual for a young woman to finish year 12 in those days, isn't it? It was a bit, and we had an English teacher in, at, um, at that level who said to us that um, the girls from Williamstown High School, when they went to uni, were not successful. They all dropped out. Uh. So that was a bit gloomy. But I managed, I did, I mean, I did go to uni. I did have some time out from uni, but also went back and, and mm. finished so, it so, was very enjoyable for me. Right. So, of course, during that period, the, the world was alive, 67, 68. So what uni did you... I assume you went to um, Melbourne or Monash? Monash Uni. So just started. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your first day when you went on campus. Oh, how can I remember the first day? Of course you can. It's All a right. pivotal moment in your life. Well, I remember the first week because yeah. they had lots of things on and you could go off and listen to speakers on diverse topics. So I, I loved what Monash had to offer in terms of tutorials, in terms of lunchtime meetings. Uh, you know, you can hear speakers. I was present when those young people dressed up as Jesus with a crucifix. Mm. I I watched them as they went from the library to the Ming Wing. Uh, And then there was a lot of fuss made about it, which, I don't know, I didn't feel part of and I didn't... didn't. I think I felt extremely neutral, like 
I mean, I couldn't see why you would want to make a fuss about it. Right. But the... I don't. I think the the first week got lost by what followed. I enjoyed lectures very much. Excuse me. You enjoyed those huge auditoriums. Yeah, I did. Oh, one hundred and sixty. What 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 degree did you enrol in? Arts degree. So here you were in these huge auditoriums. Yep. Uh, well, you enjoyed it because you could fall asleep, or you had interesting lecturers. Oh, look, the <laughs> lecturers were, were memorable. All of them, as far as I was concerned. There was one who I found a chapter in a book and he had relied entirely on that chapter for his lecture. So I thought he gave himself a very easy job just to use one whole chapter. <laughs> You're not suggesting he was a plagiarist, were you? Yes, he did. He did. And I read, already had read that uh, appropriate chapter by accident. I didn't know I was going to get a lecture on it. Right. And did you? Oh, well. well. Did you get involved in the extracurricular activities? I'm not talking yeah, about... Yeah, I did. Like what? I joined the uh, Labor Club, mm-hmm. which uh, Albert Langer was in it, Michael Hyde was in it, Naam Mushin was in it. Uh, I remember those, yeah. But I wasn't uh, in the in-group, mm-hmm. but I was certainly present when they took the vote about sending aid to the National Liberation Front in Vietnam. Right. That was a pivotal moment in the anti-war movement, yes. It might have been a pivotal moment, but I was there and I voted for the aid, and I know that Naam Mushin was uh, chairing the meeting. So I was, I was um, yeah, well aware. Well aware, yeah. Well, it's funny you mention Albert Langer. He actually rang me two days ago about another matter regarding COVID-19. I hadn't heard from him for about 20 years. Good heavens. Yes. He calls himself Arthur Dent these days, so yeah, he's kind of changed. <laughs> we won't worry about that. So you said you didn't graduate, you left. Oh. Did you or not? No, I graduated. Oh, I didn't... my apologies. My apologies. <laughs> I, I didn't graduate. I mean, I didn't go to the ceremony. I've not really been for ceremonies. You see, at Williamstown High School on Monday afternoons, we all had to meet at the drill hall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all of this business about our, our school's the best school of all yep. didn't go down with me. Right. But I did get an education. We had the local minister from the Church of England speak to us about ANZAC, probably in about 1963, 64, and he talked about the heroic bravery of Australian soldiers as they were ordered out of the trenches, got shot down, and they kept on ordering them out of the trenches and getting, and they got shot down, and it on and on it went. And I just thought, I can't understand this. I can't. I, mm. it, it, but it was a good education to know that that's how the thinking was. Mm. So when you left university, how old were you? Oh, in my twenties. Had you had you left home by then? I'd certainly left home by then. Yep, and I was living in Oakley, which is where I've got stuck. What are you still in Oakley? I'm still in Oakley. Yes. <laughs> That's not Oakley's not a bad place. I was there yesterday seeing a patient. It's not a bad place, you know. You... Uh, it it lacks parks. It it it's uh, it's. There's, what's happened to nature here is it's all been developed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You see, if, if there's a good golf club across the North Road, you know, if if that was 
and you know, if the golf club didn't want it anymore, that should become parkland for people here. There used to be parkland around Oakley Tech, which is on North Road, mm. and oh, that got that got raised, that got developed. There's nothing left of parkland, so there's hardly it's hang, it's pathetic. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, Bob. Barbara, Bob. Look, I'm going to take you to task. You've still got a pioneer cemetery in Oakley. That could be turned into parkland. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you want to get rid of all of that? <laughs> No, no, no. Well, they did that with the, uh, you know, the uh, Queen Victoria Markets. You know that's a cemetery. Yes. Yeah, well, they could do with Oakley if you need parkland. It's near the police station, you get them to well, help Well, it is you. parkland. Right now, it's parkland. Uh, what happens in October is that there's a terrific rise of these beautiful, colourful lilies. Mm. And this only goes for about a couple of weeks and they actually leave it to be... They could weed it, you know. And uh, Mother had a book on flowers and I checked them all out and they're all South African uh, flowers, South African lilies. Mm. So that's a very special area for, for the nature lovers if they want to go and have a look. That's well, it is a special... I was just making a joke about a park, but it is a very special area, but it's unusual to see... Occasionally you see little cemeteries dotted over around Melbourne that haven't been taken over, like one at Coburg... You got the one at Oakley, yeah. Now they're so small. They're very small, yeah. So what's what happens to a young woman in the seventies when she leaves Monash University? What did I do? I uh, I went teaching. Right. Yeah, teaching secondary school, mm. English, English, and a little bit of history. Right. Not in Oakley. Uh, in Springvale South. Right. Yep. So. By then, the obviously the nature of, his, of Springvale self was changing, wasn't it? Yeah, when I first started teaching Springvale South, I mean, I caught the train. I've never had a car, so I caught the train from Oakley to Springvale, then the bus down south to Springvale to Kamura Secondary College. Uh, and at that stage, in the early 80s, there were a lot of Ethiopians coming in, and I remember... I went overseas to teach for three years and and then coming back to Springvale South or Kamura Secondary College and being aware that I could hear or, or see a lot of Ethiopians around the station and they would have been staying at the Enterprise Hostel before it closed down. Hmm. So you had kind of mixed classes? Oh, yeah, Springvale South is... Um, yeah, a lot of uh, Cambodians, Vietnamese, Chinese, Dutch, some Greek, some Middle Eastern, some, yeah, mm. yeah, the whole lot. So when you said you went overseas to teach for three years, was that in uh, the old art or somewhere interesting? I went to Zimbabwe from 1982, 83, 84. Right. We could have met, you know. How? Well, I was in, in Zimbabwe in 1982. What part of Zimbabwe were you in? I was in Bulawayo. I went to Bulawayo. <laughs> Good heavens. 1982. It would have been maybe May. Maybe I oh. saw you in the distance, <laughs> Barbara. <laughs> oh, 
So what do you think of Zimbabwe? Obviously, that's when the massacres occurred in Matabele land. That's right. And Bulawayo would have been the kind of this epicenter, wouldn't it? Uh, certainly, I was aware. Yeah, if you wanted to attach yourself to the grapevine, and I did, then you got the you got the news. So I was friendly with some people who were ANC, had come up from South Africa, and we, as a matter of um, social life or habit, shared um, what we were hearing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I was aware that things were very, very bad, but it's yeah, I was aware that things were very bad. For example, one night um, the hot gossip was that that all the the soldiers had killed all the patients in a certain hospital between Victoria Falls and Bulawayo, which was run by an elderly uh, German doctor. And the hot gossip in Bulawayo, for those of us interested, was that she was on her way to visit Mugabe to to you know, share this with him. Mm. Uh, but he was away at an organisation of African Unity meeting. And, yeah, so, yes, that's what happened on the grapevine. No, it was quite quite horrendous. Um, it was kind of... Uh, there was, they had their North Korean trained troops who came back and then he used them to eliminate his opposition. That's yeah. right. And they were just... Well, there wasn't really an opposition. Mm. The Nkoma was... was I mean, the, the the Zapu has subsumed itself into the Tizanu, mm-hmm. and I think it was a very sensible thing. But what I was aware of when I was in Zimbabwe is that the left wing in Zanu and the left wing in Zapu continued um, to work together. But Mugabe and Like wanted to um, treat the the Zapu people as if they were to be eliminated. They had a sort of a Rhodesian mentality on it. Mm. Mm. Did this have any um, <clears throat> impact on you or is it just you're just basically there for teaching for three years and then you just leave? Ah, look, I, I, I love plants, so I try to learn about plants and, and I'm uh, very interested in people so I had a friendship life in Bulawayo <laughs> you know there was mm. the elderly white men the roadies down at the pool and I managed to get I don't know exclusive access to the Bulawayo pool during winter which was very nice <laughs> I got on well with the elderly men I had I had um, I had a, a lover a Zimbabwean lover mm. and so I got on with him and his um friends and family mm. uh, and so yeah I had I had I had friendship groups all around the place that I sort of relayed myself around mm. quite happily and it was very much an apartheid system but then again it's what happens in normal life anyway yeah. so did you continue teaching and when you came I can, back came yeah, back to can, yeah I continued teaching it in Springvale South yep for how long up until 1999. That's an extraordinarily long time. Yeah, well, 
I had a breakdown in 1999, so that was the end of teaching for me. Mm. Uh, when you say you had a breakdown, was it just just too much pressure or you just think that you just needed a, a change in direction in your life and the breakdown gave you that opportunity? Back in 1992, two boys started making me into target practice in December 1992. Mm. And it went, and I could not do anything about it. I wrote it up for the principal, etc. Nothing happened, and it went on for six months. And that, for me, was the end of normal sleep. So I continued teaching without normal sleep all through the 90s. But then... I would reckon these two boys organised another bit of target practice in oh, no, November. I remember the date, uh, November 99. I was on yard duty out in the school grounds at the end of the school day and I became target practice again and that was the end of my teaching oh, okay. career. Did, did, did workers comp... Did you... Did you try to get workers' comp or not? The union did not support me, and I'm a unionist. Right. I, I could not cope. I, it was a, an extremely isolating experience. My mother found it impossible to understand. She was completely out of it mm. and offensive about it. And, and uh, most of the world is quite offensive about it anyway. So... Um, I couldn't cope, and I didn't challenge it. I, the, the union was disgusting, and yet I've met other people in the last 20 years who've had far better support from the union, so I have no idea why I didn't get support from the union. So you're basically thrown on, on your own devices and your own savings? Uh, well, I did, my, did this struggle with the work cover system, mm. which is disgusting. <laughs> The, I endeavoured to stay with them, a la, you know, the sort of the battle, but that's, oh, that's, that's quite a... Oh, how do you talk about that? Oh, um, it's horrendous. Look, I understand because I'm, I'm in the business and I understand how difficult it is with managed, so-called managed care. It's <laughs> extraordinary the amount of power they have. Like TAC, you can do a medical report, you send it to their medical panel, they're panel approves it and under the legislation the TAC bureaucrats can knock back the medical panel report that supports what you want to do for the particular patient. That's right. <laughs> it's just extraordinary. Yeah. I mean. So I was continually going in and out of conciliation, mm. putting mm. my case as best I could uh, and of course eventually it, it, you know, it, it, it failed. Right. So, and I could not. I should have gone to court, but I had did not have the support of the union, and I've never understood why. Um, yeah. So, what did you do once you came out of this um, period? Oh, um, well, I got I got super, and I got a partial pension, which is what happens with you know people in my particular economic level. Right. And so, I'm actually quite well off. And uh, and so, like a lot of people, I live with, um, you know, difficulty of sleeping at night. And that's just, you know, an ongoing, you know, it's right. like, you know, choose your mind a bit. 
basically I'm very, very comfortable financially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so when I know, I know you through the uh, West Parkwood um, office. So, when did you get involved with that crowd? Well, I heard Jan Bartlett interviewing Louise Byrne mm-hmm. about the West Papuan situation, Doug Hammersholt, and what went wrong in West Papua. And my jaw, I was gobsmacked. And as she continued talking to Jan Bartlett, I got more and more gobsmacked. and thought, wow, because I'd already you know, seen the film Cold Case Hammersholt. Mm. And and I remember that during the sixties the the Siemens Union must have swung a bit of um, power, but one of the tugboats was named after Lumumba. So I was and I, I my family was politically aware. I was we talked. Mm-hmm. So I I wanted to know a bit more, so I rang up Jan Bartlett and so she said, Well, you you need to read Greg Pulgrain's book. So I rang up Breedings. No, they couldn't get it. So then I rang up Louise Byrne, and I managed to get a copy of the first edition, The Incubus of Intervention, and I read that, and I found that uh, started making me think about the Cold War and wh- how I'd grown up with the Cold War in Williamstown. Because I, I can't understand this, but I was called a commie by... There were two families in Williamstown. There were the Millers and there were the Bakers, and they were keen on calling me a commie. So I, no, because, you, because your old man was a member of the Siemens Union. Every, that's what they... That's, oh, not because of my old man so much, mm-hmm. but because of my mother and her activities. She right. joined with the peace movement right. in the 50s, and therefore she met the veterans from the from the Korean War. Uh-huh. And my understanding from her was that they were appalled at what had happened. That's my understanding. Right. That she managed to tap into that. Mm. So you were kind of... You had the mark of Cain on your back in Williamstown as a, a local commie. <laughs> as, oh, as a young as a girl. Kid. As a kid, yeah, yeah. yeah. As a kid. You know, the sins of the parents on the child, yes. <laughs> yeah. And my mother was an activist anyway. She was part of the campaign to get a, um, a kindergarten built and, you know, and of course to, to close down Wiltona Hostel and, and it, it didn't stop there. Now, now, Barbara, you seem like a very reasonable, intelligent human being. What were you doing listening to 3CR? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, look, you're digging up some history. (laughs) Look, looking after my mother for four years and living in Oakley means... I mean, one one of my friends called Oakley the dead centre of Melbourne. (laughs) And he he or she meant it dead. Uh, well, they meant it yeah. sort of geographically speaking. Oh, geographically, rather than go on. And I invited Kevin Healy to uh, Stony Creek backwater to have a look at what was going on. Mm. And I was telling him about the isolation I had throughout my life. You know, 
to know who wants to talk politics around this area. I see the back of friends' heads, or they, you know, they reach for their mobile phone. As soon as you for me, <laughs> I I feel like I've been in years of lockdown. Anyway, Kevin said something to me. Why don't you come to the drunks' lunch? That <laughs> sounds like Kevin Sleazebag. <laughs> Sleazebag. How could you call him a Sleazebag? Anyway. I, and he said, you do remember so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And And then a few days later, I thought, yeah, I remember them. And then I rang him up and said, what's this about the drunk's lunch? And and I turned up in Coburg. And for for a change in my life, I could actually have a conversation with people. I wasn't in in, in, um, conversational lockdown. Oh, (laughs) it's been like that. It is. What year was this? This is only two or three years ago. Right. So is this when you started listening to 3CR? Uh, no, I've been listening to Kevin Healy for a long time. Right. And then when I met Jan Bartlett, I started listening to Jan Bartlett, and I've been listening to you on and off since the, the 90s. My God. Uh, so I had this image of you, you know, <laughs> based on your voice. I, I was corpulent and uh, short. Is that correct? <laughs> I don't think you're that short. No, but I mean, you know, the image, the image. <laughs> no, 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 the image was somebody who was, um, you know, real smooth. Oh, <laughs> you mean I'm a super sleazebag. <laughs> During the 90s, I happened to hear you, there were quite a few extreme right ringers would ring up and you would very patiently deal with them. Yes, that's right, that's me. <laughs> And I used to think, how on earth did you do that? Well, it's my role to humiliate those type of people on there. Other people want to ban them, and I fought here at 3CR not to ban people like that. I just want to humiliate them, show them what idiots they are, but show the listeners, but that's a different story. So when did you get involved with the West Papuan office itself? Well, Louise Byrne suggested I visit Mm -hmm. for an open day, and I did. And I, I enjoyed it very much. It, I mean, during the 60s in Williamstown, the left wing was, was busy. There was the anti-Vietnam war on. There was the peace movement. And turning up and meeting, you know, this odd, disparate group of people, you know, family and uh, others, all sorts. Uh, that's the sort of, that's what I was used to. And so going off to the West Papua office, which is, you know, sociable and a, a whole lot of different people there, uh, who are interested in, um, well, do, you ha- do we have to say the word intellectual, who are interested in current affairs? Current who, affairs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, current affairs, who actually are, have got a f- who are focused on what's happening around them. Mm, mm. Uh, well, it's extraordinary. You've, you've finally met your family. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, I've always thought that you've been there since the beginning, six years ago. Obviously, you haven't been. I mean, no, no, it, I'm, I'm, I'm new. Yeah, the fact that you've actually kind of, kind of, part of the fabric. I, I always assumed you'd been there from the very beginning. Shows you're ignorant. I am. Do you think the, the office is useful? The office is extremely useful for my. From it's. Um, oh, how do you say? I mean, it's very funny. The oh, if you go to the meetings on Monday, uh, somebody brings along food, which is terribly nice. And then, one time I was there, 
and they offered a Bible class That's on right. women in the Bible. That's right. And I and I sat down and I actually found it very funny and very very enjoyable. Right. It's funny, isn't it? Here, here you've got the atheists and these fundamentalist Christians in the same room fighting, you know, the same fight for West Papua Independence. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah, but you know, that's the beauty about being a member of the Rent Collective. You don't put your... Oh, I was going to use the word belief. Sorry, Barbara. <laughs> what you think, on, you know, what the Rent Collective does, as you know, is we just pay the rent. They, they do. They run their own show. Yeah. And it's very busy and it draws in people and mm-hmm. the... It's uh, a friend of mine used to, who I used to enjoy very much in the 90s used to talk about the orthodoxy and the heterodoxy. It is a heterodoxy in there. Right. So are you, are you still looking for volunteers or you've got enough? Oh, look, I'm sure that... Well, I'm not... Louise Byrne. Mm. Uh, I'm, they, I'm sure they could do with lots and lots and lots more support. The... Yeah, that's good. Are you are you involved in organising? Hopefully, this open day on the nineteenth of September. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've um, yeah, I've got a job. I uh, I'm so far at this stage. I'm introducing Greg Pilgrain, who's the author of the book mm. that we're launching. Yeah. Uh, JFK versus Dulles, and I've read it once. And I did a bit of a synopsis, as Louise calls it. And then I thought, if I'm going to introduce him, then I need to know the book closely. So at the moment, I'm reading it closely. And I'm good at skim reading, but I'm reading it closely to um, understand it in more detail. Why do you think it's a pivotal book? Because, uh, you know, I think it's uh, it makes some... Interesting. I mean, what is it? Twenty-five years of research, real research, but it makes a, it pulls together a lot of uh, disparate stories into the the same bowl. That's a big question. I that book made me start thinking about the Cold War as a you know as a as an entity to be analysed rather than, you know, to be warded off personally over 70 years or so. Why is it pivotal? It's pivotal because it explains why so many people were killed in Indonesia. The Melbourne International Film Festival has been running films about the the bloodbath in 1965 uh, on and off over the years I've been attending the film festival. So, yeah... We know that the horrors. During the 60s, in my family, it was considered a good thing that West Papua was taken over by Indonesia. Mm. And that was the, the feeling of the left at the time. Yeah. And it's based on utter ignorance. But with the Cold War, the Cold War idea that we must save the world from communists and keep the world free is a statement that is conceals what happened behind the scenes. And what Greg Pilgrain has done is find out what did happen behind the scenes. You know, 
500,000 to 3 million people are not killed just by, you know, rogues misbehaving themselves. They were killed for a very, very special reason. And I can start off by explaining that. Um, mm, I'm afraid, that, Barbara, people will have to come on open day or get the book because we've almost run out of time. I, I want to ask, so it's, it's uh, hopefully it'll be on. Uh, yes. Open day, 19th of September, 1 to 4 p.m. Yes, uh, and lunchtime is between 1 and 2 o'clock and then 2 o'clock the meeting starts and you'll be able to come and... Uh, listen to Greg Pilgrain talk about his book mm. and why West Papua didn't get its, its independence and how Rockefeller and the elite American establishment made damn sure that Indonesia didn't become a country, con you know, didn't continue to run itself as a nation, but... Mm was run by the military on behalf of the United States establishment, which includes Rockefeller mm. and the, the most rich people in the United States. Now, Barbara, I'd like to thank you for being on Radical Australia and sharing bits of your life, but I'm going to give you a job, Barbara. Oh. I want you to go down to Corriott Creek again and tell me if there's anything left. Corriott Creek? Mm. Now, what part of Corriott Creek? You mean that bit which goes into Altona Bay? The bit that you went as a child? Yep. Yep, and when I see you on the 19th, I want you to tell me. Oh, if we get out of lockdown. If we, we get out. If, if not, if not, if not, <laughs> the next one before Christmas, the next uh, uh, Ren Collective uh, do before Christmas, obviously. We'll have do, you wanna, do, you wanna, do you want a trip across Altona Bay? Well, that sounds interesting. Well, you've got a tinny, have you? No, no, you don't need a tinny at low tide. Don't you? <laughs> I just need galoshes. Well, Barbara, it's been a pleasure. Barbara Hall, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'd like to thank you for coming on air and hopefully uh, people will come along on the 19th of September and if it's cancelled because of COVID-19 lockdown, we'll, we'll reschedule it because it's... Reschedule it. You don't want to miss it because this is our, our history... And, yeah, we are connected together and we need to understand that. Well, Barbara, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish you all the best for the next uh, 28 years on the planet and uh, we'll see you on the 19th. Uh, thank you, Joe. Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love comes your way What can I say You feel it.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.